No, it's finally over. Winter has come. The midterms have ended. We can all take a big, deep breath. It's over. We can all stop stressing out about the elections. Well, at least the midterm. Now now that the midterms have over, uh, the 2020 election cycle has officially started. Like, campaigns are are revving up their their new engines, but... Like, I, I would recommend putting up the blinders to that for now. We've got a ton of stuff to look into uh, from just, like, the last couple days. The midterm results for the House and Senate, some of the governor positions as well, some of the key positions uh, taken by both Republicans and Democrats. Uh, this wasn't a full win or full loss by any means. The future plans for the parties with the upcoming 2020 election. How do they plan to move their party forward and enact plans in, in this bipartisan situation? And what's just come out, um, the Jeff Sessions resignation. So all that coming tonight in the Looking In podcast. Now, first off, I just want to get off the bat that I, I don't think these results were much of a surprise. Uh, to most people who are following polls and following the news, um, most predictions showed that the GOP was going to maintain control of the Senate and that the House was going to go to the Democrats. Although there was a fair bit of uncertainty, um, but most of the projections said that was going to be the result, and you know that that's what we do see. Uh, what's come out um, at the moment of recording? Not all final results are in, but what we can confirm is the the GOP, the Republicans, will keep at least fifty one seats, which beats the um, it's the smallest amount you can have for a majority. So they are keeping the House. Sorry, they are keeping the Senate. And looks like they might actually gain more than that and gain a, like a broader majority. Um, with, with that power, um, if more judges get replaced in the next two years, uh, the Senate's going to have a lot of power to enact that, to put more right-leaning judges in the Supreme Court. Law-wise, it's not going to be as easy to enact the Republicans' uh, political viewpoint. Um, as much as they had from this point forward, given the shift in the House. So what, what we have now is a 230 for the Democrats and 205 for Republicans. And the Democrats have been the 218 a majority placement. So they are most definitely going to win control of the House. So, I mean, this has been portrayed nationally as a power balance shift. Uh, that this is the big blue wave that, that's washing in and and th- this is the big movement, the big shift. I'm not as sure that this is the the big win, the big blue wave that the Democrats have been recording for some time. I, I think this was a win for both sides with the with the GOP gaining Senate seats, but and then losing the House, that was a big loss, and uh, win win for the Democrats, with winning the House, and a loss in showing that they weren't able to sway as much influence in Senate seats, or in in governor positions. Like, uh, passing laws uh, from this point on, which we're going to get into soon, it's going to be much more difficult. With this bipartisan uh, legislature, you're either going to have to have moderate bills or or nothing but um, bill obstruction or more of a House subpoena situation where the goal is to investigate Trump and try to push for uh, his tax returns and and to investigate uh, the parts of them and to put the focus on being an, an anti-Trump party if they're not able to make anything happen uh, law-wise. Because everyone wants to seem productive, even when you you have um, dueling parties in the House and Senate. No one wants to look like we couldn't do anything because that doesn't show up well in future ads in the next campaign, that you sat there and did nothing. So we'll, we'll see how that turns out. There, there were so many um, of these races... That, that would like have you at the edge of your seat. 
and I was on campus at the time, and I, I saw a variety of different, um, like these election watching parties I, on campus where, where people were uh, like almost to the point of nail biting. You'd see like 49% to 49%, like 70% reporting, like people freaking out. Like you could, you could flip a coin for so many of these candidates. Um, one remarkable thing is that for, for a midterm election, I, I, I applaud this. This is incredible. Just the sheer number of people who showed up to vote. I mean, this blew away the numbers of the last midterm. So this certainly shows a lot of, of base support and a lot of enthusiasm and motivation and passion coming from both sides. It seems like the, the Republicans have gotten fired up over, over things like the recent uh, uh, Kavanaugh hearing and the Democrats pushing against him and the Democrats um, being impassionate about, well, for one, Trump being elected and trying to, uh, like in a sense, reclaim power. That's, that's been the push. Because the, the, the Democrats haven't really had much of a voice in Congress, in the executive branch. They, they've lost judges. They, they needed something to give motivation back to say, we, we've, we're reclaiming power. And reclaiming the House and having a massive turnout for both sides, I mean, it certainly shows that well, a younger generation and that America as a whole are becoming more active in the political spectrum, in the political field, which is almost certainly a good thing. The more people are involved in politics, perhaps the, hopefully the more educated your, your populace is. Like, I, I hope that with the, each of these elections that people are having more conversations about the candidates who are running, the platforms and issues they're running on, and being involved in the democratic republic that we live in right now. The, the Texas Senate results, I, I, was, I was keeping a, an eye on that the other night as, as the polling was coming in. Wow, I, I thought Ted Cruz was done for. I, I thought he was he was going to be out. It was neck and neck for most of the polling as it was coming in. And right at the end, Ted Cruz pulls in. It, it's, it's insane that a Democrat almost took Texas's uh, Senate position. Like when, when you think Texas... You know, like a real, on its own, strong, independent, deeply red state. You you did not think that Beto would have would have gotten anywhere close to winning, but he almost did. Like the the numbers I'm seeing right now, it's fifty one percent Ted Cruz to forty eight point three percent Beto. Just wow. This this was almost too close to be comfortable for Republicans. It shows that maybe they have to reevaluate their message or the way that they're displaying their message or perhaps even who's carrying the torch on some of these issues. So when you have something that, uh, that's as contentious as Texas almost go blue, it's, it's a real concern to the Republicans. And in many ways, a real passionate outcry from Democrats that this is, this is a chance to swing things. But it didn't go blue. That's, that's part of the reason why I argue that the blue wave didn't really sway as much as it needed to. There were a lot of close positions. In, in the Senate, it seemed like a lot of these close calls went to Republicans. And in a lot of these states, Trump went and he, he did talks to really rile up his base to get them motivated out to vote he even with with uh, his lower than average approval rating he's still able to rally up his base and get them to go and vote he, he has that power of impassioning his base in the more contentious house positions you saw that a lot of them went to democrats 
perhaps that's just due to how this election was sliced up for this midterm. And I, I think that has a lot to do with the exact results we got, but definitely a contentious race all around and not a definitive win, not a not a real visible push from one particular side in this battle. And with the polling still coming in, Florida is still contested, Arizona is still contested. Wow, um, like M- Mississippi, um, like projected winner uh, is like the incumbent Roger uh, Wicker. And th- th- this is really interesting with Mississippi, uh, the, the other side of position, they're having a runoff election. Uh, because in Mississippi, they, they have a, a special election. If if no one gets at least 50% of the vote, so both uh, Cindy Hyde-Smith and Mike Espy, they're both advancing to the next round because uh, the candidate Chris McDaniel got 16.5%. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure when this does go to runoff that, um, that Cindy Hyde-Smith is going to take this away. Um because Cindy got 41.5% uh, of the vote. Mike uh, SB got 406 And this other guy, Chris McDaniel, uh, he's also a Republican. He was just trying to um, get in there and win. Um, 16.5%. And then the other Democratic candidate who is not advancing, um, Toby Bartet, 1.4%. So you, if you throw all of Toby's 1.4% to Mike's, he now has... 42% of the vote. If you say all of Chris McDaniel's votes are now going to Cindy Hyde-Smith, uh, she would easily have uh, 47%. Sorry, 57%. So, I think Mississippi's runoff, that's going to go Republican, just as a general prediction right now. Um, other crazy things that, that have gone down in this midterm election... Well, not a party nor a candidate, um, while not being exactly clear who did better or who really uh, took it away in the midterm elections, uh, there's one thing that does seem to be sweeping across the boards in the nation, and and that's the vote for uh, marijuana in the United States. The the midterm elections are, are showing this. Michigan voters have just added themselves to the state's um, legalizing cannabis, and it's the first state in the Midwest to do so. Um, this could easily cause a cascading effect to other states in the Midwest. Um, Missouri and Utah both approved initiatives in this midterm election to legalize medical marijuana. Not recreational, but medical. That's two more states that are leaning closer to this, this national initiative. Um, not the entire state, but several Ohio cities. They approved local marijuana decriminalization measures. And um, as we've seen in other states with decriminalization, it puts uh, marijuana prosecution for law enforcement at the bottom. Uh, it makes it the, the smallest thing to pursue. This is not seen as a serious crime in these cities. Um, North Dakota, they tried to pass that, but that measure failed. And Wisconsin, around half of their uh, their counties and cities here in Wisconsin, um, had a referendum this midterm on marijuana. Now, this was not a a um, a referendum to change the legality, but more of a poll in the polls to see what people thought. Would they approve of a measure to legalize at age 21? And vastly um, across these Wisconsin cities and counties, there's widespread support in Wisconsin. And with the uh, the election of Tony Evers by an incredibly close call, incredibly close, close match, it does seem like Scott Walker has conceded there were there were talks about a recount because of how close it was. It was in the um, there was one point when I was watching this where they were only a few hundred votes apart. Within the last 
hour or two of, of vote counting. Such a close election across the board. Um, and then Tony Evers has, has promised to legalize marijuana after a state referendum. As this referendum was only half the state, there would have to be some sort of new referendum. And then marijuana in the state would either pass or fail, dependent on that. Uh, so you can expect that uh, to show up in Wisconsin, likely within the next two years, if Tony Evers follows uh, his promise in that regard. So Wisconsin could see itself to be uh, potentially the, the second Midwest state to fall in line with these, these other legalized um, marijuana measures. Uh, but again, if this election is anything to show, uh, uh, Americans are sliding more and more towards marijuana legalization and it's not insane to think that there, this shift is going to be a shift in the same manner that uh, gay marriage was legalized state by state across the nation in that slow, begrudging manner as each one adopted it in line before it becomes uh, nationally approved. Um, I mean, it wouldn't be terribly surprising um, matching Canada in, in the competitive economic advantage of, of this new uh, product and drug. So definitely keep your eye on that. I mean, this is a, an interesting development and a huge win for those uh, supporting cannabis in the United States. But well, I, I can't wrap my head around how, how exciting of a midterm this was. Like there, there, regardless of where you are in the political spectrum or your personal beliefs, I mean, you can feel happy or, or you can be a little, um, you know, pissed off about it. There's things to be happy about. There's things to be mad about. I mean, the Republicans are gaining seats in the Senate. That's a benefit for them. They lost the House. I mean, that, that's a pretty big loss on their end. Um, Democrats, they have the... Uh, like the House taken, they were able to sway a couple governor positions. Um, and, I mean, with, with their, their growing adoption, party-wise, of marijuana, um, that's likely going to be a win on their side as well. Um, with, with the particular issue of marijuana, though, it's, it's interesting. Um, a majority of Democrats seem to be in support of the legalization, where with Republicans, it's, it's 50-50. On, on their party base, where around half of our are, are in support and half are not. And those numbers for both parties have been slowly going up over the past few years. So it, it won't be terribly surprising if five, ten years from now, you see more and more um, Republican candidates coming out in support of, of marijuana as their base becomes more in support of it, which seems to be the case, especially with um, younger and younger people coming out to vote and more um, of these, these younger people reaching the voting age and participating in the democratic process. So let's give you the rundown on exactly how Wisconsin did in the midterm elections. For the Senate results, uh, the incumbent, Tammy Baldwin, she held her position in a tough but not extremely tight race against uh, Leah Vugmir uh, with Baldwin getting 55.5% of the vote and Vugmir getting 44.5% uh, with only a, a roughly uh, 300,000 vote difference. So close, but not as close as a lot of the other elections we've seen. Tammy Baldwin takes that away. Now, there were a lot of House positions open for uh, Wisconsin. Like, uh, for, for Wisconsin House results, I mean, you, you had for, for House 1, uh, Republican uh, Brian Steele won 54.9% uh, of the vote. For House 2, um, in, like, incumbent Mark Pocan, he's staying in office. House 3, Ron Kind, incumbent, 60% of the vote, staying in office. House 4, Democrat Gwen Moore, Incumbent, she won, staying in the House. House 5, 
Jim, I'm going to butcher this last name, uh, Sensenbrenner, I think that was right, 62, Republican incumbent, staying in, um, like, for, for the House, for the Senate, all, all incumbents stayed in. I mean, it was a pretty standard election. Like, people showing support for the people they showed support to in the last midterm, in the last election of all these people. The, the main change was in that um, marijuana referendum where you got to see about pretty outstanding support in about half of the Wisconsin districts. And in the governor election, it was, it was so close. Like, it, at the end of it, it came down uh, to La Crosse County. Wow. J- just the sheer number of, of college uh, regions, like the Milwaukee area, Madison area, with huge population bases and a strong Democratic leaning in those two regions swayed an enormous amount of this vote. And it seems like that is what really made Tony Evers a competitive foe to Scott Walker in this election. I mean, Tony Evers, I mean, at the end of this, we, with 99% reporting, though this is going to be fairly accurate, um, as to any relative changes in the next couple of days, 49.6% of the vote, Scott Walker, 484 one, 1% difference. When it comes down to numbers, that's that's right around 30,000 votes. 30,000 votes. Like if, if all the uh, independent voters, all the third-party voters had voted um, like for one candidate, that would have swayed it. it. It was that close. Slightly higher turnout for one party. That would have swayed it. It was such a tight election, but Tony Evers, he's flipped the governor position for Wisconsin. And for Wisconsin specifically, this is the going to be their biggest change. A lot of college students, I mean, that was his big base. He's been in the education system before. He, he used to be um, a teacher media coordinator in the uh, Tomas School District. And then he eventually um, became the superintendent of public instruction of Wisconsin. So he was overseeing education in the state. And he used that background to give him a sense of legitimacy of trying to improve the education sector in the United States. Um, He ran on a platform of improving infrastructure. And a lot of the ads that I was seeing pop up I was saying that he's going to stand up to Trump. And, uh, I mean, it shows a lot of what the Democratic Party is running off of. I mean, um, it wasn't brought up in this ad, but I did see in other ads the, the health care position. That they're going to uh, try to make health care more affordable. seems like they're jumping on the Bernie Sanders uh, boat and pushing more and more for a single-payer health care system for the nation. And that that's a big platform they're running on, um, running on uh, the position of, of unions and the education sector, and particularly teacher unions. That was really contested in Wisconsin. I mean, for the last couple of years, the teachers unions were very much against Scott Walker. Um, I mean, this goes back to uh, the 2011... Uh, Wisconsin Act 10. I mean, this was known as the Wisconsin Budget Repair Bill. And this was uh, used to address the the deficit at the time, the $3.6 billion budget deficit, and it had a lot of cuts. And one of the things it cut was something called collective bargaining. And this was meant to limit collective bargaining um, or union wage... Um, um, negotiation and they put a cap based on the consumer price index on the total wage increases 
you can say this put limits on on how much the unions could bargain for or or how much they could try to agree for more of and then contracts would be limited to one year wages would be frozen until the new contract is settled um, and then collective bargaining unions were required to take annual votes to maintain the certification as, as a union um, so power was removed from the unions uh, and teachers didn't like this for one and I mean you might, might remember especially if you've been in the state for a while um, that there was this recall movement to try to recall Scott Walker there was this vote he survived that he didn't get recalled then he was re-elected in 2014 uh, 52% of the vote um, ran for president in 2016 I mean didn't get very far but I mean, he gave it his best effort and we get all the way here, 2018, and I mean, I- irony strikes when you least expect it. He he made it harder for the the teachers unions to bargain. You you could be for teachers unions, or you might not. But th- there is a certain irony that someone from the education sector um, ended up taking him down. I mean, kicking Scott Walker from his throne and, t- and taking his seat. Um, I mean, the superintendent of public institution of Wisconsin. I mean, the, this is this guy in the education sector. I, there, there's something ironic about that. I, mean, I think that's what leaves like a sweet taste in, like so many of like the the college students' mouths and the, and and anyone who seems to be in the education sector, they're very happy with how this turned out. But that's Wisconsin. Yes, well, we'll see where, where Tony Evers goes next. What he what he can do for uh, the Wisconsin government as he takes his governor position very soon. What about the nation? What happens next? Well, there, there's certainly several Senate and House seats to be found how big of a lead are the Democrats going to get? How many seats are they going to settle at 240? Maybe. Uh, we're we're going to find out soon. So there's still wiggle room for both parties. Um, the, the the GOP could jump from 51 to 53. Um, I mean, but it's pretty settled. We know who's in the majority. So now you have a Republican Senate and you have a Democratic House. How are they going to make laws? We, you, you, had, um, you had a flip of this uh, back in the Obama administration where we had a Republican Senate and we had a Democratic House. And what do we, what do we see? What were the results of this mirrored arrangement when we had um, President Obama in office? Well, the two body, legislative bodies were not able to work together. They weren't really able to enact laws uh, there were often um, filibusters on the Republican side in the minority in the Senate to prevent laws from going forward and you saw a large number of executive orders and executive actions by the president Um, and when executive orders and executive actions um, at least within the last couple months have been seen by the Democrats as an abuse of power by the president uh, perhaps their control of the House and potential blockading of legislation could encourage and promote the exact behavior by the president that they don't want to have. So it's entirely possible that you you could have gridlock and you could have these blockades that, I mean, certainly wouldn't make anybody happy in in this situation. Um, But will we have that gridlock or will there be a bipartisan solution? Uh, Nancy Pelosi a current minority leader and likely soon to be um, House Speaker on the Democratic side, uh, she believes there's a bipartisan solution. In, in her speech after the Democrats won the House, she said, quote, we believe we have a responsibility to seek common ground where we can. Openness and transparency, accountability and bipartisanship are a very important part of how we will go forward, end quote. Well, she's starting this off with the idea that we will be able to work together. 
we will be able to keep people accountable and we will be able to create laws together. I mean, will, will that happen? I mean, hopefully. Uh, Trump had also told reporters on Wednesday that he saw an opportunity for a, quote, beautiful bipartisan solution, end quote, on a variety of different issues. Um, but he also said that this could be compromised by potential uh, Democratic investigations into the administration. So take that as you will. Um, with, uh, as we'll talk about later, the, the, the Mueller investigation and what's going on with that, as well as the fact that now Democrats control the House. Um, with that, they get subpoena power. They can try to subpoena the president, try to get tax returns, or a variety of other um, you know, attempts at investigation, uh, investigative analysis of the president through subpoena power. The House also now has the power to impeach with the Democratic control of the House. So th- these are all tools in their toolkit of ways that they can attack the president. I mean, will they use them? And what will the effectiveness be? How will this affect the uh, integrity of our nation and the legislative impact moving forward? Um, regardless of, of this f- uh, future uh, potential uh, path forward, uh, Donald Trump seems to uh, you know, approve of Nancy Pelosi, uh, at least as in the speaker position, when he said, quote, in all fairness, Nancy Pelosi deserves to be the chosen speaker of the House by the Democrats. If they give her a hard time, perhaps we will add some Republican votes. Um, that was on a tweet he had November 7th. Um, I I don't think they're really going to give Nancy Pelosi a hard time. I don't know where, where he um, came up with that. It, it seems pretty likely that the House Democrats are going to vote Nancy Pelosi in as the House Speaker. I don't see a reason they wouldn't. Um, she, she's a very eloquent way of, of taking on the role. And I, I think she's likely to get that position back. Uh, Pelosi also said, quote, Yesterday's election was not only a vote to protect American health care, it was a vote to restore the health of our democracy, to put an end to unchecked GOP control of Washington. End quote. Um, so, the idea of protecting American health care. You, you've seen a lot, a lot more Democratic candidates run off of uh, like a single-payer solution. I mean, Bernie Sanders was really driving this into the heart of the Democratic Party, uh, particularly through his 2016 presidential bid. And it's it's clear that this has swayed the party in that direction, the direction of, you know, the idea of health care for all. And this could certainly come into conflict with a Republican legislation who are, are very against this. If this is one of the issues that they're going to push, I don't think we're going to have that beautiful bipartisan solution that Pelosi and Trump seem to be both rooting for. If you're going to try to tackle issues in a divided Congress, they need to be issues um, that probably won't move very far forward. It's small steps and on a moderate uh, platform. Those seem to be the two things that you need to pass legislation in a divided uh, Congress. Uh, if they go straight down the health care route, um, it's likely to get the Democratic base excited, and maybe that's the goal. But in terms of enacting bipartisan law, I'm not sure that's the right route. A Pelosi also said that Democrats, quote, do not intend to abandon or relinquish their investigative and oversight responsibilities when the majority is seated in the new uh, Congress in January. Quote, this doesn't mean we'll look for a fight, but when we see the need to go forward, we will, end quote. Um, so, with the idea of the subpoena power and the impeachment power, they're not putting it off the table. They're they're more than willing to use it, and they they feel justified in in utilizing subpoena and even potential impeachment power. When they say look for a fight, that's what they mean by by their investigative and oversight responsibilities. So it, it's like I said, it's a tool in their toolbox. And it's unclear to the effect of whether that will be useful to the platform or whether it will give them the information or end result they wish for. Uh, something I, I found entertaining as I was watching uh, Pelosi's speech is that she's actually starting to pull in bits of Trump's rhetoric. Um, I, I, I love this. Like, quote, we will drain the, the swamp of dark interest money in our elections. Um, end quote. That, that was from Pelosi. 
I mean, pe- people found it kind of funny when when Trump was saying we're going to drain the swamp. We're going to drain the swamp. Um, I mean, e- even if it does sound funny when the guy says it, it, it's certainly a good position to hold. It's a strong position to hold. No one likes the idea uh, of a corrupt government. So if you say we're going to drain the swamp, we're going to get rid of corruption, we're going to get rid of dark money, uh, which is where Pelosi is going with this. Um, I mean, the goal is to increase confidence in your government. If you don't trust your government, if you don't think they're working for you, you're 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 not going to even want to vote at all because you think it's all rigged, it's all corrupt. Uh, why why even bother dealing with government if I know they won't listen to me? So perhaps uh, the idea of draining the swamp, maybe that's a bipartisan deal. Maybe there can be laws on on transparency in government. I think that's something both parties could begin to agree on. But the the idea of of the investigative powers of, of the House, and that is their responsibility. They do have the subpoena power. They do have impeachment power. Uh, Mitch McConnell seems to doubt the effectiveness of, of pushing down that route of attack. Um, and he, he referred to, um, he went back to his old um, party's investigations in the 1990s of Bill Clinton. Uh, I'm sure you, you remember the investigations into that and and the, the purpose of trying to impeach that man. And Mitch McConnell said this, quote, We impeached him. His numbers went up. We went down. Democrats will have to decide just how much presidential harassment is good strategy. I'm not sure it'll work for them. He also said, quote, presidential harassment was something we deeply engaged in, and it improved uh, the president's numbers and tanked ours. It might not be a smart strategy, but it's up to them. So he seems to think that, you know, attacking the president, that going down the route of subpoenas impeachment, that it's actually only going to fire up... Um, the president's base is going to make them more excited and more willing to vote against um, the Democrats in the coming 2020 election. And perhaps there's some truth to that. I mean, uh, my, my perspective is that if there's legitimate cause for investigation or for impeachment, it, it should be followed through. Uh, subpoena power and impeachment power uh, is, is given to our Congress for a reason. And we should see to it that the tools are used effectively and honestly. I think that's a stance that everyone can hold with. So at the end of the day, what we have is this hope for bipartisan progress. You have the potential for um, House subpoenas and investigations and even eventual impeachment. Um, You have the potential for an increase in in presidential executive actions and orders. And more more confidence on, on the left. Uh, there there was ambiguity to some people of whether or not they'd regain the House, and there was this big hope again for that blue wave. Um, while it's arguable whether or not there was a blue wave, there was certainly a reclaiming of the House. And if this was the Democratic Party, if you can see it as them uh, regaining some control or rebuilding themselves in preparation for the 2020 election, I, I think they did a decent job of that. In this election, then, well, they they've proven their support, and they've proven um, that they're able to to push back and regain some of those, those seats and positions and power in government that they lost back in 2016. Another interesting um, thing that came up, really related to the midterms, is uh, you you had this stock market spike right after the the, the midterms were over. I mean, um, the Dow Jones Industrial Average that closed up. 545 points, huge gains, um, mainly by uh, United Health and Apple. The S&P 500 uh, gained 2.1%, and this was mainly driven by industries such as healthcare, tech, and consumer discretionary sectors. Um, each rallied more than uh, 2.8%. NASDAQ composite rose 2.6%. Um, I mean, post-midterms, there, there's usually some change. In, in the stock sector, but this was uh, the the biggest gain, midterms gain, uh, in in stock market since uh, since nineteen eighty two. So this this is a pretty decent change. 
this is a big increase, and people seem to more be more um, optimistic, seemingly about big tech industry and big health industry. So we'll we'll see if those um, predictions and uh, as the stocks have increased, um, consumer optimism about said industries have increased as well. So perhaps this is a good sign as to a better future for for corporate prosperity and or for future job growth. There's, there's been an insane amount of job growth. I mean, the highest in, in, in years. Uh, as we found out um, within the, uh, the last month. Will there be a spike in that as well? Will we see an increase? I mean, we'll have to see. What we do know is that optimism seems to be high for a lot of people. But where things really seem to go off the rails and I there there's so much happening during the midterms right now. There's so much to get to. Jeff Sessions has resigned. Now th- this is big news and this is on top of all of the the midterms cover uh, covering and on on top of um you know another story that's being covered of of Jim Acosta being banned um from the White House due to an altercation with with uh with an aide and Trump um, trying to make him stop asking questions and stop talking about the caravan and give up the mic. Jim Acosta uh, from CNN didn't want to do that. Um, an aide tried to grab the mic. Uh, he didn't let her kind of push back a little bit. Um, that little altercation. And then Jim Acosta was banned. And you can have your own opinions on that. But that's certainly blown up as a story. So we have the Jim Acosta story. We have the midterms. We have Jeff Sessions resigning uh, under pressure from Donald Trump. I mean, it, it's hard to wrap your head around all of the news happening within uh, like a 48-hour span. It's, it's insane that people can, can stay on top of all of this. So we, we, we should be clear that Jeff Jeff Sessions, he has submitted his resignation. And it's it's fairly clear that it was, it was under pre- uh, pressure from Donald Trump. It was it was from him. Uh, like the the letter starts off saying, "quote at your request, I'm submitting my resignation." So he's saying very outright um, that that Trump wanted him and asked him to resign. And Donald Trump has tweeted, "We are pleased to announce that Matthew G. Whitaker, Chief of Staff to Attorney General Jeff Sessions at the Department of Justice, will become our new Acting Attorney General of the United States." We thank Attorney General Jeff Sessions for his service and wish him well. A permanent replacement will be nominated at a later date. So this Matthew Whitaker guy, he's the temporary uh, replacement for Jeff Sessions. And he can only act as as the Attorney General for a maximum of 210 days before a permanent uh, replacement. So, I mean, at most, this guy can be in for a couple months. And... A lot of the people on the Democratic side, and in fact, a lot of the people who are handling um, Mueller as this, as, as the like the, the knight in shining armor who's going to put a sword in in the dragon of the the, the Trump administration, um, they're, they're worried about this, and we're we're going to get to that in a minute as to why people who are really for Mueller um, would be concerned by this change. But we, we need to get our heads around why um, Sessions would be fired in the first place before, and give us the little bit of the timeline so we can understand the context of all of this. I mean, Jeff Sessions has been with Trump for some time. I mean, um, since, since it seems to be like the beginning of their campaign. And it seemed to be a good relationship. When Trump, however, had his, uh, his first, first address to Congress... Um, he was actually getting some pretty positive reviews. People were saying that he was acting more presidential. Um, he was actually getting compliments, which, I mean, with with uh, the news and, and Twitter replies, this, this is pretty new news for the guy. So it seemed to be a positive change overall for government and unity. And the very next day, the very next day, um, evidence and accusations came out that Jeff Sessions had lied earlier under oath um, when he said that Quote, I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I did not have communications with the Russians. However, he was found to have worked with um, 
Russian amb- ambassador Sergei uh, Klesyak at least twice while working with the campaign. So he met with the Russian ambassador twice, and he said under oath that he never had Russian contacts. Um, so either it just slipped his memory or he intentionally lied. Uh, or he didn't see this guy, this Russian ambassador, as a Russian contact, which is seemingly kind of hard to believe. Regardless, um, this was not looking well uh, for Jeff Sessions. And with, with the yeah, like investigation into the 2016 campaign and the, the claim that there was Russian meddling and the, the, the what we now know as the Mueller investigation... Uh, Jeff Sessions, as the Attorney General, would be sort of the boss in this situation, to put it simply. Like, the overseer. This would be the kind of guy that Mueller would have to give his report to at the end of the day. So, in an attempt to not look biased in the situation, Sessions recuses himself. He says, I won't be involved in this. And then we had a temporary replacement for this particular investigation. Uh, Rosenstein. And while Sessions had recused himself, Rosenstein would be this sort of independent um, overseer to the Mueller investigation, and it would be away from the uh, recusal from Jeff Sessions. Trump wasn't a fan of this situation since it removed a lot of his control from, from this investigation, and it moved it away from him. He didn't have power over, over this narrative, and it, it became more and more a point of media focus, which was not pleasing to the guy. This was all bad publicity. I mean, past that point, there, there's been, um, like, a- accusations of Mr. Sessions having disloyalty from Trump and Trump calling Sessions unfair. And we, we finally got to the point of, of getting him to resign. After a long feud on Twitter and and stories of what Trump was saying about Sessions, uh, you know, behind the doors of the White House. Like, finally, the feud has ended by just telling Sessions outright to resign, and now he's out. So now there's been a replacement. And the replacement is this guy, Whitaker. And with this replacement, there's no longer that recusal from the Russian investigation that Session had. Whitaker hasn't recused himself. He's the now acting attorney general. So Rosenstein's position as the overseer of the Mueller investigation is gone, and Whitaker is taking that control. Whitaker has publicly um, spoken out against the Mueller investigation, um, saying that it was going too far. And Whitaker has the power to file under Mueller, quote, for cause end quote, as outlined for the rules of governing the special counsel's office, if just cause is found. So there's two main concerns from the Democrats, and namely people who are concerned for the Mueller probe and whether or not it will be handled legitimately and whether or not it will be able to go forward unimpeded. If Whitaker um, were to fire Mueller, someone could be replaced who doesn't really care about the investigation. That, that's part one. Could uh, his department be defunded? I mean, that's possibility two. Uh, could Whitaker just throw the investigation in the trash? I mean, that's possibility three. So you, you have three lines of attack that this investigation could be uh, assaulted from if Whitaker really wanted to shut it down. Um, I, I was hearing tonight that there's planned protests uh, across the nations to try to defend the Mueller investigation. Nor saying that this change in attorney general um, is an obstruction of justice. It, from the point of view I'm looking at, this act in itself is not an obstruction of justice, so long as Whitaker himself does not interfere directly with the uh, investigation or attempt to shut it down. Um, while it's clear that he doesn't like it, so long as he does not act on his personal views, um, we, we don't have obstruction. Where you're at right now, it seems to be, you know, one step before obstruction. People are, I, I can see a comparison 
to uh, like the Knicks in the Monday Morning Massacre, where you you had people fired, fired, fired until Nixon was able to, to get someone in who would actually fire the people investigating him. Um, this is, could be looked at as sort of this stretching long term. Monday morning massacre under the Nixon administration. But the key detail is whether or not the Mueller investigation is, is going forward. I don't. It doesn't seem like you have obstruction until the investigation itself is impeded in some way, um, purposefully, by the Trump administration, and particularly Whitaker in this case. Then you would have a legitimate obstruction, and you could point your fingers at it. So people are concerned, um, I, I don't think what we have here is obstruction, but there is certainly concern, and I mean, it's fair to raise your voice, and to be heard, and to say that you, you would not want, say, Mueller to be fired, or this investigation to be, you know, defunded, or thrown out by Whitaker, I mean, it seems irresponsible, if there's actual evidence, if there's actual facts that Mueller's going to bring to the table, and it seems like they're writing their final report now from from what I've been reading. I mean, it should be able to go as planned, and then we can all take a look at what Mueller has to say when they finish their investigation and determine the legitimacy of what they found and determine whether or not Trump um, has actually participated in obstruction of justice or has, um, as the claims have gone, committed treason or, or worked with Russia. We need We need the evidence. And to get actual evidence, you need Mueller to finish his investigation. Shutting it down doesn't look like you're innocent, and shutting it down doesn't look like you don't have anything to hide. The most responsible thing to do here on all sides is to allow the investigation to conclude, and if it finds nothing against you, you put your hands up and you say, well, they couldn't find anything. Oh, well, he has investigation. It was legitimate. I mean, that, that should be the plan here, if, say, you are innocent. So we will have to see how Whitaker handles this position, um, I mean, he again, he can only be in there for 210 days. Who the new attorney general will be and how this, this Mueller investigation will be handled from this point on. There, There's so much that you have to keep your eye on in, in this election cycle. It's it's every day that it seems like we have a new story coming up. So be, be aware and be wary of, of all the changes happening in the department. And... Well, let's see if we can follow this story over the next couple of weeks and, and see what happens. I, I, I try to be optimistic about these issues and give the best stance I can. And I, I hope you stay informed as well. And you look into these issues and you stay informed as to the state of your government. And if, if you voted earlier this week, uh, good on you. Stay involved in democracy and for healthy democracy, we need an informed democracy. So I hope you keep looking into issues, uh, as will I. This is Alex from Looking In, signing off.